0: Oftentimes in the workplace or in social settings, when my friends or those that I'm talking to find out I'm a primitive Baptist, almost without exception, they begin to ask, what is it that primitive Baptists believe? What makes primitive Baptists different from other kinds of Baptists? In the sermon today, we're going to deal with this question and try to answer it as simply and scripturally as possible. In order to do that, we must first look at some things that we don't believe. The sermon today is the first half of a message preached back in 2019 entitled, What Do Primitive Baptists Believe? I sure hope you'll join us for this sermon and again tomorrow for the conclusion. But first, here's a song selection that we hope you enjoy. All morning, I see. questions from time to time about the fact that I'm an I am a primitive Baptist I'm a member of a primitive Baptist church and often I get questions about well what is it that makes a difference between primitive Baptist and say some other kind of Baptist or any other denomination out there what is it that that separates you if you will in the sense of distinguishes you from others uh, out there in the world and and also find as I go about uh, in the world there are many misunderstandings about primitive baptists and what they have traditionally believed and what uh, the mainline primitive baptists today believe often we get tagged as what they call fatalists uh, what is to be will be Heard one man say one time, "I believe what is to be will be if it never happens." And uh, y'all think about that. You'll get it in a minute. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I wanted this morning. I felt like been strongly burdened about this, and to try to hopefully explain a little bit in the message this morning about what Primitive Baptist churches, and particularly what Zion Primitive Baptist Church, believes. Now, in order to do that, I think we first have to deal with what we do not believe here at this church and and one of the things that uh that one of the divisions out in the religious world today is a division between uh what we call calvinists on one side and arminians on the other now that's just a name that theologians use to delineate those who follow the teachings of john calvin on the one hand And those who follow the teachings of a man named James Arminius who was opposed to what John Calvin believed. So often we're all put into the categories of Calvinists or Arminians. And let me just go ahead and let you in on a little secret. Primitive Baptists don't fit into either category. They're really not a good fit either place. And that's important to remember. First of all, we are not Calvinists because the Calvinists believe in something called absolute predestination. We do not believe in absolute predestination. That simply means we do not believe that every single thing that happens out there was predestinated uh, eternally by God and that there's no varying and no changing of that. When I when I get in my car and I run a red light and I T-bone another guy, which I did a few weeks ago, uh, <laughs> God didn't predestinate that to happen. You know what caused that to happen? I was looking at the wrong red light. I was looking at a block down there. I'll tell you what really caused it, Brother Dalton. It was those crazy red lights in California. They're sitting on the side instead of up in the air. But anyway, that's another story altogether. (laughs) So everything that happens is not eternally and unchangeably determined by God. In the early 1920s, that swept through this area and took over many churches, including Zion at one time. But this has not been the traditional belief of primitive Baptists. But because of this error, many people think that's what we believe. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about. I think I've already done that. But but what that teaching is, is that all things, including sin, are eternally set in the mind and plan of God and cannot be varied. And essentially, we're all just puppets doing whatever God has determined for us to do with no free will whatsoever. Well, there's a a verse in Romans chapter 5, in verse 19, that destroys that argument. It actually destroys both the Calvinist position and the Arminian position, but we'll come back to that in a minute. In Romans chapter 5, in verse 19, we read this. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. I want you to notice something here. The first man that he's referring to is Adam. You want to know why bad things happen in this life? Blame it on Adam. <laughs> Blame it on Adam. That's exactly why. Adam, he says, as by one man's disobedience, sin, many were made sinners. In verse 12 it says, As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam is the cause of sin. If you want to know who the author of sin is, it's not God. It is not God. God cannot be charged with sin, and God does not care for sin. He hates sin. He will not have sin. He will not deal with it. We're told in Habakkuk that he is of of purer eyes to behold evil and cannot... Uh, cannot be in the presence of sin beloved he hates sin and notice what it says it was by one man's disobedience now listen if all things were unchangeably fixed forever in the mind and purpose of god then what adam did in the garden wasn't disobedience it was obedience (laughs) right That, don't, that doesn't that not carry water the, then the word of god is untrue and there's a problem here if that's the truth of god's word but beloved it's not because adam disobeyed god adam did not do what god uh, intended for him to do you know adam really is the only man who's ever lived that had true free will and some of us would say well i wish i'd have been there preacher you're telling me that sin passed upon me because of what Adam did? Boy, if I'd have been there, I'd have done better. You'd have done different, all right. You'd have probably run straight to the tree and grabbed the fruit. <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem I've got. I'm not just, you know, Adam was our perfect representative. God knew what he was doing when he created Adam. He, he was a whole lot better looking and in better shape than you and I are, okay? His DNA was perfect when he was created. In fact, he lived 930 years. People always get up there, oh, that's a myth, that's not the way. Listen, there's an easy explanation for why people, are those ancient patriarchs lived so long. Their DNA was better than ours. You know, over time, sin corrupted the very DNA of, of, of God's, of everyone in this earth, all of Adam's descendants. But at the time, they were in good shape. They lived 900 and something years. And in that day, Adam was our perfect representative he was the best representative of what man could do you say if you'd have been there you'd have done different listen i know if i'd have been there i'd have sinned quicker than adam did because i'm just adam multiplied and let me just say this too one of the important things to keep in mind about what primitive baptists believe is that there's two different types of salvation taught in the word of god you'll see some places where uh eternal salvation is under consideration um, in in matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 he says he shall save his people from their sins he says there that he's going to save us from our sins and it's not a question it's not an if and or a but he shall save us from our sins you see well that's eternal beloved that's That's fixed in the mind and purpose of God. We're told in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. He says, or 28, it's a very famous verse. Most people know verse 28, but they don't know verses 29 and 30, which verse 28 is pointing us to. He says in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Does that mean all things without exception, including the sins of God's people? No, it's not talking about that. The all things he's referring to is what he's about to tell us here. All things work together to them, for, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Listen, this is all things. This is beautiful, beloved. For whom He did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Beloved, those three verses right there capture what primitive Baptists believe and have believed down through the centuries of time. It captures what we believe here at this church about salvation, that God, in the time past, in eternity past, saw that man would need a Savior and he sent that Savior and that Savior died on the cross and he paid the sin debt for his people and he accomplished their salvation. And praise God, in in time we are quickened and made alive so that we can understand these things and know these things and have a vital relationship with God and one day he's coming back to get us. It's pretty simple, isn't it? And I've already jumped to the end of my message right there. (laughs) I was going to save that up for the last. But let me tell you, I can't save that for the last because that's the good news of the gospel of the grace of God. (laughs) We do not believe that all things are inevitably and unchangeably predestinated by God. We do believe that our eternal destiny is set by the Lord and purposed by God and that He has loved us so much that He doesn't leave it to chance. But in this life, I said already, we've got two types of salvation. There's a a timely salvation out there. Did you know I could have saved myself several thousand dollars and the embarrassment of having Brother Dalton text me about running that red light if I just watched to see where the red lights were. So Brother Dalton got me pretty good on that one. I could have saved myself from that. By making a different choice, now that doesn't get me to heaven, does it? I almost got to heaven quicker, brother Dalton. <laughs> it doesn't get me to heaven, but it it gets me a little bit of help down here. You know that by being here in church this morning, you have saved yourself from this crooked generation, this untoward generation. You didn't have to be here this morning. You could have gone fishing. You could have gone somewhere else, but by coming here to this church or wherever you go to church on Sunday morning, by choosing to go, you save yourself every Sunday. You know, I don't need just one time. I need one eternal saving, Brother Mackey. But I need to be saved every single day from the sin that does so easily beset me. I do not believe, we do not believe in the absolute predestination of all things. And I'll tell you something else we don't believe. Often I get this question. So you believe God predestinated some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. That was a Calvinistic doctrine. John Calvin taught that. He believed that. He he believed in what we call double predestination. God predestined some to heaven and he predestined some to hell. Let me tell you something about election and predestination. First of all, don't get nervous about those words. Those words are nothing to get nervous about. They're they're things to rejoice in, beloved. Election and predestination have nothing to do with hell. We don't need God's help getting to hell. Adam set us on that path in the Garden of Eden. We are, we are by nature uh, children that, uh, that ought to be in hell. We ought, you know, if you t- look over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, uh, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Listen to this wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You don't need God's help getting to hell. We're told that sin entered into this world by Adam, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men. For the, By the way, you don't get a pass and say, oh, well, man, if it wasn't for Adam, I'd be okay. No, well... If it wasn't for Adam, you know, you, you, you could say, if some people say, well, I, I've lived a perfect life, but I'm just, because of Adam, I'm going to hell. Well, you hadn't lived a perfect life, okay? By saying that, you sinned, <laughs> if you think you lived a perfect life. See, so he, he says, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We are sinners by nature, by choice, and by practice. Now, we're not sinners. We don't become, we don't, uh, become sinners when we sin, but we sin because we're sinners, you see. And what he's telling us here is that there was a time when, when we were dead in trespasses and in sins, and that there was, we were merrily, if you will, on our way to hell. We didn't need God's help getting to heaven. Anyone in hell today can blame Adam and not God. You see, the electing grace of God, as we find it in Romans chapter 9, is a precious thing, and it only has to do with saving people from hell. It has to do with the compassion of God. Listen to chapter uh, 9 of Romans in verse 10. He gives us here an example of the electing grace of God by using two children that had not yet been born, Jacob and and Esau. In verse 10 it says, Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. That pretty much does away with us doing something in order to get to heaven. Because it's not of works, it's, it's of him that calleth. You say, well, it's not about a work, preacher, it's about a choice. Well, let me ask you something. I don't know about you, but a lot of what I do has to do with making choices at work. I have to decide at work. And you know, i even been out there on the farm a good bit lately, and sometimes it's not the labor that's so hard, it's the making decisions that, about what to do next is hard. <laughs> Matter of fact, any decision you make, if you really boil it down to the scientific explanation for it, is a work. It's the expen- expenditure of energy. You've got little neurons in your brain that fire electrical impulses that that cause, that, that make you, uh, when you make a decision, that's how it works. And and I'll tell you this, some of the Decisions I've made in my life have been the hardest work I've ever done. <laughs> oh my. It's not of works, but of him that calls. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Some people take issue with that verse. I do too, but not for the reason you think. My question is not how he hated Esau, but how in the world could he have loved Jacob? You read about the life of that man. Do you read about what a conniver and what a liar and what a cheat he was? Do you read about all the things? Hey, even after he, he was born again, even after he had an encounter with God, he still struggled and he treated one of his children better than the other, so much so that the other, other ten hated him and sold him into slavery. He messed, you talk about a messed up, you think your life's messed up? Have you had any children yet that were ostensibly murdered by the other children? You know, they they really didn't kill him. They just told their father that uh, a bear bear or a wildcat had eaten Joseph. But in reality, what they did is worse than death, really. They took him and sold him into slavery. You think your life's messed up? Hey, old Jacob got you beat, but yet it says, Jacob, have I loved? And then he says, what should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Often, that's the question I get when we start talking about the doctrine of election and predestination. Is there unrighteousness with God? I understand. People ask, well, that wouldn't be fair, would it? You know what his response is? It's twofold. First of all, it's like when I when I would question my daddy, okay? Why, daddy? And that depended on my attitude a little bit. If I got up his face and said, why, daddy? Well, if I ever did that, Mr. Hayward, it probably wasn't any more answers coming. It was just a, you know, just, just a, an action. If I got up in his face and belligerently, pridefully said, why? You know what he'd tell me? Because I'm your daddy and I said so. You should get to it, boy. That's kind of the first answer he gives you. He says, is there unrighteousness? You'll say, uh, what should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is this not fair? The first answer is, God forbid. Don't you charge God with unrighteousness? Do you not know God? Do you not understand from the word of God how, how he is the very epitome of righteousness? He is always doing right. We're told even Abraham in a meek and humble way asked this rhetorical question to God in the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the implied answer is absolutely the judge of all the earth is always going to do right. So there's no need to ever question him. And if you do, you just don't understand who God is. He's not just this great Zeus-like figure with a lightning bolt ready ready to zap you when you do wrong. He's also the one of whom it said, as a father pitieth his children. So the Lord pitieth them that love him. You know, I need that sometimes. Sometimes I need the righteous judge to remind me who he is, but sometimes I need the great father that pities me. Sometimes in the dark recesses of the night, as I'm crying out to him, I don't need to be zapped with a lightning bolt. I need to be held in the arms of the great father of God himself. Then he says this, though, after giving us that answer, God forbid, you don't understand God if if you charge him with unrighteousness in this matter. He says, listen, you misunderstand what election is anyway. Because listen to what he says. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You want to know what the election of God is all about? It's about the mercy and compassion of God. Because you see, he goes on to say, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In other words, you can't will your way to heaven. You couldn't run your way to heaven. You can't choose him enough or do enough good works to get yourself to heaven. And that's why he had compassion and mercy on his people. Because he knew you couldn't do that. He didn't predestinate somebody to hell. We were going to hell. But the mercy and compassion of God has demonstrated in his electing grace. And in predestinating us to be conformed to the image of his son. Oh wow. That's what saves us from our sins. When Jesus came to die for those people. By the way, let me also say this. We read Romans 8 and verse 29. And sometimes people get this idea that, well, election is God looking down through time and seeing what you would do. And therefore choosing you to be in heaven. (laughs) Well, half of that's true. We're not turned there, but in Psalm 14, we read that the Lord did look down through time upon the children of men to see if there were any that did good, if there were any that would follow him. And basically he says, they, are, they have all gone out of the way. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So that part's true. And I'm thankful that that is not what election is all about because if that's what election was about and he looked down through time to see what I would do, huh, oh my, in and of myself, all I would do is reject him and cause him grief by being the sinner that I am. no, it doesn't say for what he foreknew in Romans 8 and verse 29. He didn't foreknow things. And he didn't foreknow what we would do. It says for whom he did foreknow. Whom. And that means it was a personal foreknowledge. It wasn't whom he knew about. Whom he knew in a personal loving way, as Adam knew his wife Eve and, and, a, and a child was born of that relationship, as, as the intimate knowledge that we have of our family members and knowing one another. See, that's what God did. We are elect, according Peter says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Oh, that's the great electing grace of God right there. Something else that we are sometimes accused of is primitive Baptists, but we don't believe, We do not believe in a chosen few. You know, you hear that sometimes. And sometimes I've even heard it say that, well, them old primitive Baptists, they believe they're the only ones going to heaven. I hope not. (laughs) It's going to be a lonely place up in heaven if all that's up there is primitive Baptists. Uh, It's going to be a lonely place. I don't, the Bible doesn't teach a chosen few. As a matter of fact, the primitive Baptists believe in the most inclusive uh, Christian belief that's out there. And that is in Revelation chapter five and verse nine, we read, they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for thou wast slain, speaking of Jesus, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message.